Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We're going to talk about justice in, uh, in Canada, and uh, we'll talk about systemic racism in Canada's justice system. My guests are, and they're good friends of mine, and... Uh, Friends of this program, Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, professor at Simon Fraser University, former senior policy advisor to a federal minister of public safety. Uh, how are you, Scott? Fine, thank you, Roy. How are you? Great. Thank you very much. Jeff Manishin, former prosecutor, now criminal lawyer and partner at Ross and McBride in Hamilton. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Roy. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jeff. I just wanted everybody to know that uh, Jeff Madison hits the longest drive I've ever seen in my life <laughs> on the golf course. I played golf with him a week ago today. I swear it wasn't an inch under 500 yards off the tee. Can we replay that? I'd like that on tape, actually, Roy, because uh, it shows that sometimes fantasies do come true. <laughs> anyway, guys, when you before we talk about the systemic, and it's hugely important, systemic racism in the justice system of this country, when you hear... When you heard the ambassador, to, a former ambassador to China from Canada, speaking what the two Michaels from Canada are in, are facing in a Chinese prison, uh, it, it's just abhorrent. I, I'd like your thoughts. Uh, Scott, when you hear that, what's your immediate response to that? Um, it's a reminder that uh, our arrogance sometimes you know, gets in the way of effective results. We tend to think that everybody in the world wants to be like us and, you know, uh, follow the same kind of societal uh, uh, protocols that we have, and that's completely not true. China has their own system, their own priorities, and they do what they want. And us deciding that, you know, we can just simply deal with this as the, uh, uh, the way that we would with anybody else, any other Democratic partner is ridiculous. There's uh, necessarily, Chinese are going to react to what they perceive to be in their best interest, Period. Uh, Jeff, can you imagine being a defense lawyer in China? You're a defense lawyer in Canada, a criminal defense lawyer. In China, the conviction rate is 99.9%. Why even show up? Uh, I guess because you want to try for the 1%. I guess because if you believe in the principles of justice, uh, that that's what you want to advance. If you're concerned about to the impact on human rights, and that's what you've taken on as your job, uh, you'll carry that through to the best of your abilities, notwithstanding the odds. And it becomes really difficult, I'm sure, emotionally and psychologically, but uh, that's the role that a lawyer has to take on, and it's a heavy responsibility. It's just when you hear that, that kind of description of, uh, of what people have to go through and live with, on the one hand, it's shocking, and on the other hand, you go, no, I'm not shocked, because it's, you've heard about that kind of form of justice in the past, and it's so, so unfortunate that we've got Canadians this time that are caught up in it. They're caught right in the middle of it. They're, they're hostages of the Chinese system. All right, let's talk about our justice system here. And, and, uh, and the question about whether there is systemic racism in Canada's justice system, and if there is, where is it? Jeff, why don't you start? Sure, and it's something that's well enough established that it's considered to be the, something, the subject of judicial notice, that judges can accept it without really needing evidence. As was stated by a judge just a couple of weeks ago in a sentencing, the case is recognizing the prevalence and perniciousness of anti-black racism in the judicial system are legion. And we go back, Roy, to 1993, where as a result of evidence that was put forward, it was determined that if an individ a black individual was charged with an offense, his or her lawyer could ask a potential juror, would your ability to decide the case fairly and impartially based only on the evidence be affected by the fact this person is black? 
and that was well established and it's been it's been followed since and we see it as well in cases of arbitrary detention there's clearly a basis for conclusion that there's a disproportionate policing of indigenous black and racialized communities it's been referred to the court of appeal in in 2003 the supreme court of canada 2009 and just last year our supreme court of canada again identifying it and finding that officers had infringed the rights of an individual they said we arrived at a place where research now shows disproportionate policing of racialized and low-income communities so that's established and now we're seeing it more most recently uh, roy in the context of sentencing there are some cases that have come about and one is going to the ontario court of appeal where the defense filed something called an impact race and cultural assessment showing the impact on racial based disadvantages poverty mental health being victim of violence how that could be considered on sentencing to affect what a judge might find on the moral culpability of the offender, and it could potentially reduce the sentence. That's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not a race-based discount, but it's a recognition of what somebody's life experience has been, how the, the discrimination somebody may have experienced may contribute to how and why the individual did what he did. But that's going to be considered by a five-member panel of the Court of Appeal potentially within the next year on sentencing. All right, Scott, your former prosecutor, uh, senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety and former executive director of the Canadian Police Association. When I say to you, uh, is there systemic racism in uh, in the criminal justice system of Canada? You just heard Jeff. What do you say? Um, number one, it's a complicated issue. Um, uh, there is, uh, I don't think there's any question that there is systemic societal racism in Canada Okay, and inasmuch as the criminal justice system is one public system that operates within Canada, it is not surprising that that reality is manifested in our justice system. But what always struck me as ironic uh, was there's no question that there is systemic racism in the justice system, uh, and it goes back, uh, and, and it's, it's like literally uh, encoded in law in uh, Section 718.2 of the Criminal Code, there was an enactment uh, made in the uh, uh, early 90s. Uh, it's called the, uh, it was a, uh, the Gladue case. And Parliament uh, passed a law that said that you, and they singled out a specific race, Indigenous people, and said you that a court should take into account the Indigenous person's background uh, before imposing a sentence. Now, that I think is absolutely appropriate that our courts take into account relative factors in sentencing, including a person's background, irrespective of whatever uh, race they may be or religion. Uh, but, you know, to single out one race at the time, I can tell you there was a lot of people that went, um, that discretionary power already existed by singling out a, a, you know, a specific race. I'm not really sure that does an awful lot of good. And the larger question really is, and I mean, Jeff touched on, on the point about this, about why it is relevant to the uh, to the cases, and it's absolutely true that there are a disproportionate number of people who are either indigenous or black, um, South Asian, uh, who are uh, Middle Eastern, who are charged with criminal offenses and who end up in prison. But with respect, I think the real question, um, or, or the real fact that you have to take into account is that uh, that is so, but that's also because there's a disproportionately high number of those same groups that commit crimes. And the real question is, why is that? And that's a larger question for society as a whole, as opposed to simply the criminal justice system. 
So this is a very complicated issue, but it is definitely one that needs to be addressed. Jeff, I don't know if you want to pick up on what Scott said. Please do if you do. But can we bring police into the discussion here as well? Because so much has been said about police in this country and Canada, both at the municipal level, the provincial level, and at the national level. Sure. I, I would start by saying, and I won't claim to be a sociologist and expert on statistics, to say that, that by way of numbers, you have an overrepresentation of individuals who might be of uh, visible minorities that commit more crimes necessarily, Scott. Rather, I'd say that uh, the issue of, of over-policing might well involve a higher level of charges, a higher level of searches, a higher level of stoppings, and not necessarily with uh, proper cause. So the more you may at- pay attention to someone and the more you may choose to be able to focus on a particular group, the greater potential you have for charges. Um, you have some challenges, of course, uh, Roy, with respect to issues such as carding, which is a technique that police were using, and it had to get to be the subject of study because it was being used effectively as a basis for discriminatory police practices. I think one of the things that concerns me the most, Roy, is I haven't really seen what I'd call meaningful changes in police training and education on issues that relate to and consequences for race-based infringements of people's rights. It's been years that it's been an issue, and as recently as just a couple of years ago, a judge, in excluding evidence of a firearm that was found, said the charter rights of all of our residents are at risk when the rights of young men of color, like the applicant, are trumbled, trampled upon by the excesses of heavy police boots. And that wasn't physical boots. That was an unnecessary and arbitrary arrest. The use of force is another one. Do we really have means involved, such as they have the eight-can't-wait program in the states, identifying practices police should implement, reducing the use of force, finding alternatives to deadly force. It's used more often on people that are black than people that are white, potential use of force and even death. Scott? Well, I can tell you, actually, uh, I was a prosecutor in Alberta, and uh, one of the uh, areas in my judicial district was uh, Hobima, was the home of the uh, four uh, uh, First Nations bands. There was the, the uh, wealthiest reserve in the uh, in the country, because uh, after we stole the land from the Woodland Cree, we stuck them on a swamp. Turned out it was full of oil, uh, but it was also among the most violent places uh, uh, in, uh, in all of Canada. And it was a demonstration that money is not the solution. And you know, we got to see the the volumes of crime, and and it is true that that's the case. But to Jeff's point, though, I think that is uh, and your question. I think it is absolutely uh, relevant, and perhaps the most single relevant issue that's coming out of all of this is to take a look at the current policing models and activities, uh, because um, it, I think they illustrate some things that demonstrate that changes uh, need to be uh, to be made. About a decade ago, I was involved in a process with the uh, Calgary Police. The Chief Rick Hans was a friend of mine, and it was, and it was uh, about the you may recall it at the time it was called the economics of policing. And what was going on was that the police were being dragged into and forced to do all of these other activities that, you know, previously had supposedly been dealt with by community social groups, like dealing with mentally ill people, like dealing with drug addicts, like dealing with homeless people. And originally, they weren't being paid for it, and it was affecting their budgets. And I did some work with, uh, with that and doing a very detailed report on it. And over the years, they have received the funding for it. And so when you hear about defunding, that's an issue that's relevant if you're talking about transferring those responsibilities back. But you've got to be clear about this, though. The reason that the cops got into it in the first place was because those groups were not doing their jobs. And there's the case 
that was last night in uh, Mississauga that's a good example of this. It's now under investigation from the SIU because there was a, I think he's about 65 years old, it was a mental health call, and he was shot to death. And it turns out that, as I'm reading the story, that the original call was made by his family, and it was to paramedics, and it was when they arrived and they were told that he had a uh, knife that they then called the police who showed up. And so you got to be, this is not going to be an easy situation where you just snap your fingers and hand it back to, you know, the um, uh, uh, non-law enforcement uh, entities. But equally to the point that Jeff made as well, too, I completely agree that there needs to be a revisitation of the training procedures because the essence of training, and I have been involved in doing some work about this, is it's called the IMIM process. And essentially it's about uh, achieving and maintaining control and while that might be okay in dealing with, you know, uh, criminal uh, interactions, when you're dealing with people, especially with mental health issues, that may not be the most effective strategy. And the outcome, you know, while it may satisfy the IMIM requirements, did not need to happen. And I, okay, I let me let me let me so let me stop you, Scott. Let me. One of the consequences of this discussion is that we I've have. Got, to, I have three. I have three minutes left. I'd like to just focus on one one question for you both here because you're both so knowledgeable on the on the on the issue. Time is of the essence, I think, in 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 moving forward. Uh, justice issues, as as you and I know, Scott and Jeff, I've spoken with you many times over the years, uh, but it seems that steps are tiny and incremental often. Do you see the, the possibility for significant momentum in really appreciable change to the issues that we've been talking about, Jeff? Yeah, I do, and I, I'm optimistic. The key word I'd give Roy is heightened sensitivity to the impact of discrimination. So maybe finally we'll see mandatory minimum sentences be uh, be ruled out or at least used far less often. Finally, we may see changes to police procedure. Finally, may, we may see society come around to say discriminatory practices can occur in a host of areas from school to uh, child welfare to mental health. And I, uh, the hope now, Roy, is people will commit to change. Scott? I agree, and uh, it's been a while since Jeff and I have spoken, but uh, we agreed then and we still do now about uh, mandatory minimum sentences. There are some legitimate exceptions, but I also do not agree with them. The genius of our justice system, Roy, is its ability to deal with this offender, this offense, and that needs to be restored. Um, Also, there's got to be a real partnership. In my opinion, this should not be something that's coming from the top down, but rather from local engagement, and in particular in relation to Indigenous communities, there's going to be different solutions, different communities. Reserves will want different kinds of solutions, but there are definitely ways that we can improve things, and I hope things, and I hope uh, the focus, the necessary focus is there, including, however, a recognition of the, of the, uh, the need for people to speak uh, candidly. And it's not simply a matter of listening, it's a time to act. Yes, It's agreed. not simply a matter of saying, I hear you, what are you going to do to actually Correct. make a change? Because it's time. As Sam Cooke's song was, I think a change is going to come. Let's see it come not by talk, but by action. Yep. It's interesting you say that, because we've had time in the past to address this. I hope we do now. Uh, I trust that we will, because we really cannot afford not to. Uh, Jeff Manish and Scott Newark, thank you both so much. Always great speaking with you both. Thanks. Our pleasure, Roy. Good chatting again. Good See you, Scott. You. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Jeff Manishin, uh partner at Russell McBride in Hamilton, criminal law specialist, former prosecutor, and uh, Scott Newark, former prosecutor in Alberta. 
and uh, now professor at Simon Fraser University. He was also a senior policy advisor, as I've been saying, for a federal minister of public safety and executive director of the Canadian Police Association. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.